Welcome to episode 24 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Since I last recorded an episode, I have seen the Super Mario Brothers movie twice. With my kids, that is. Not on my own. Although I did think it was excellent. It's cramped. It doesn't really ever leave the game environment. And there's a lot of fan service in there and a lot of nostalgia in there. But that's great. That's what I wanted out of it. As an observer of movies, I'm not especially sophisticated. You give me an extended Mario game in bright, beautiful colors with a terrific soundtrack, I'm anyone's. So if you're thinking of taking your kids or going on your own, do. I'm going to start today's show with a brief Q&A section. And then when I've done that, I'm going to talk to Giancarlo Sopo about the threats that the GOP faces ahead of 2024. Question one. Were he alive today, would Ben Franklin be repairing old cars or modifying golf carts? Historically, Americans make, alter, and enhance all manner of tools, contraptions, food, music, etc. I think the obvious answer is both. But Franklin would no doubt have been into golf carts. Because despite being from Pennsylvania... Ben Franklin would have made one hell of an honorary Floridian. Franklin loved lightning. He loved drinking. He electrocuted turkeys. He was the first guy to chart the Gulf Stream. And as my friend Troy Seneca has pointed out, he had a mullet. There's simply no way that Benjamin Franklin would not have been tinkering in his garage with a golf cart and a stack of YouTube videos. He might plausibly have had a custom shop, Franklin's Carts, or perhaps published Franklin's Cart Almanac on Substack. And, of course, it would have been especially appropriate for him to have done so because Franklin was interested in electricity and most golf carts run on electricity. You know that scene in Back to the Future where Doc Brown and Marty have to harness the lightning that hits the clock tower to get enough power into the DeLorean to get it up to 1.21 gigawatts and go back to 1985? Well, basically, Benjamin Franklin would have done that, I think, but with a couple of Nissan Leaf batteries inside a customized club car precedent. Come to think of it, I would definitely watch that movie. And look, if they can make Hot Tub Time Machine or Cocaine Bear, they can definitely make Benjamin Franklin's audacious golf cart adventure. I would go at least three times. Question two. This one's a bit more serious. What do you think the practical end goal of judicial originalism is supposed to be? For instance, if Wickard v. Filburn, that's a famous New Deal case, were overturned, 
it would lead to lots of popular parts of the regulatory state being unable to do their jobs. I guess this would mean that people would want a constitutional amendment to solve this. What do you think the constitution would look like after these sorts of amendments happen, and do you think you'd be happy with it? That's a great question. In effect, the question there is, what would happen if the Supreme Court actually upheld the Constitution as it's written, and thereby overturned a lot of the previous decisions that have enabled the United States to have a much bigger government than the Constitution allows? And the answer to that, I think, lies within the question itself. In many realms the American public would indeed demand a series of constitutional amendments, the purpose of which would be to restore the status quo ante. So I suspect, among other things, we'd get a constitutional amendment enabling Social Security and Medicare and a constitutional amendment enabling a broader interpretation of interstate commerce. And in fact, I suspect that if FDR had pushed for these amendments back in the 1930s, instead of just doing what he wanted and hoping that the court didn't stop him, he'd have got the public to go along with him and pass them. So would I be happy with that? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Not because I want those outcomes politically, necessarily. I'd much rather live under the constitution as it existed prior to the New Deal, but because that would be the correct way to achieve the outcomes that we already have in practice. In my view, it does an enormous amount of damage to our written constitution to pretend, for political expedience, that it is more elastic than it actually is. Now look, Social Security is popular. If the American public were told that they needed to pass a constitutional amendment to preserve Social Security, they would quickly demand and get that amendment. And in that case, the result, that is, having Social Security or not having Social Security, would be the same. But the means by which we got there would not. And as a structural guy, as a guy who cares above all about the constitutional system, that really matters to me. But to put it bluntly, I consider huge swathes of American constitutional law, including some of the cases whose practical effects I like, for example on gay marriage or the death penalty, to be brazen lies. Any reform that brings the plain meaning of the Constitution more closely into line with how our government actually operates would, in my view, be good. And aside from anything else, such a move would in and of itself represent a shot in the arm for originalism. In other words, if we got back into the habit of demanding that the federal government were able to do only those things that it has been explicitly permitted to do by the Constitution, then we would, by definition, be taking the Constitution seriously, which would have positive knock-on effects in areas we may not have considered. Or, to put it another way, 
a country that wishes to change the constitution to permit certain activities is a country that is far less likely to tolerate a Roe v. Wade or an Obergefell. That is, decisions that were made up out of whole cloth. What would the constitution look like in that circumstance? Well, I think it would be simultaneously more and less protective of limited government. The assumed scenario here, I suppose, is that an originalist court has overturned a lot of the incorrect decisions of the past and thereby hamstrung the federal government, and the executive branch in particular, in important ways. Now, as I suggested earlier, this would lead to the successful demand for constitutional amendment that enabled the federal government to act in certain areas. But it probably wouldn't lead to the successful demand for constitutional amendments in all cases. There'd probably be a significant difference in the public's enthusiasm for a constitutional amendment that, say, enabled Social Security and a constitutional amendment that permitted Congress to outsource most of its functions to the executive branch, for example. And at the very least, we'd have a widespread debate about a lot of the legacies of the New Deal, some of which I suspect my position would lose, and some of which it would win. And even if we lost all of them, it would be preferable to what we have now, because what we have now is an effective replacement of Article 5 of the Constitution with a rolling council of revision, which is just not how our Constitution is supposed to work. I think ultimately, I see this in the same way as I saw Roe v. Wade, which was that Roe v. Wade was a lie, and therefore it was illegitimate. If the consequence of our overturning Roe as the Supreme Court did last year, is that every single American state ended up adopting the exact set of policies that they were previously forced into by Roe, well, that would be extremely politically regrettable, and I would argue strongly against states doing so, but it would also be infinitely preferable to the situation before. Structure really matters. It matters that our federal laws are passed by Congress, irrespective of whether I favor or disfavor those laws. It matters that criminal trials are held before we imprison people, even if they're ultimately found guilty. It matters that we hold elections for our public offices, even if the incumbents win again. How you get somewhere is important, and originalism understands that. So the scenario that is outlined in that question is one that I would favor even if absolutely nothing in our present policy outcomes changed day to day. Now, before we get to my guest this week, I want to tell you about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The podcast is called Free the Economy. And it's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control. From legalizing the gig economy to the perils of ESG and what true diversity in the workplace looks like, 
Each week, CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have honest and candid conversations about how these policies and more shape our economy and our society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship were encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts, or alternatively, visit cei.org forward slash free the economy. My guest today is Giancarlo Sopo, a Republican strategist and the founder of Visto Media. I was chatting with Giancarlo on Twitter today, and I thought, hey, why don't we do this in public? Let's record this for the podcast instead. So that's what we're going to do. Giancarlo, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hey, great to be on and congrats on the show. It's It's been a tremendous success and I've had a lot of fun listening to it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So this morning I was scrolling through Mimi Random, which for those who don't know is a news aggregator that I tend to check in on in the mornings. And I was hit by a wall of news stories and opinion stories and opinion stories masquerading as news stories, whose argument, in essence, was that the GOP is screwed. I'll give you a quick sample. Here's one from Vanity Fair, titled, Between the Tennessee Three, Abortion and Trump, the GOP just loves losing. The subhead on that one is, The GOP turned three Tennessee Democrats into celebrities the unpopular anti-abortion crackdown is still in full force and the party is rallying around an indicted Donald Trump. What politically disastrous decision will Republicans make next? Then from Politico, also from today, Republicans facing a reckoning later this week. The opening line of that one, Republicans are openly distressed about the prospect of losing younger voters over their stances on abortion, firearms, and democracy. Now, maybe that's true. I can certainly construct a case for it. But then I look at the polling, at least at the moment, and I don't see many signs of it. For example, if I look at the generic congressional ballot page on Real Clear Politics, I see four polls from this year. Now, the latest two have the GOP up by plus two and plus one. The earlier two have the Democrats up by plus three and plus two. So that's a wash, give or take. 538 has five polls in a row on the generic congressional ballot with the GOP up. And if I only use the pollsters, they grade as A quality. Their polls show the GOP up plus one, up plus one, down minus one, and up plus one. And then there's the presidency. The last five polls on RCP have Trump up seven, up two, down two, down two, and up four against Joe Biden, with the average at plus 1.8 Trump. Ron DeSantis, the last five polls. Pitting him against Biden are DeSantis plus eight, 
plus 2, plus 3, plus 1, and minus 4, and the average has DeSantis at plus 2. Now, I know that it's early, but these two propositions, they don't seem to match to me. So my first question is, how correct are those fear-mongering pieces? Are they partially correct? Are they completely wrong? How should we think about the environment now with those two disparate sets of claims? So the, the first part to that is that I would say that in a perfectly rational world, uh, the GOP would have a lot to be concerned about, right? Uh, for the reasons that you mentioned, because of the unpopularity of certain policies. Um, but what ends up happening in practice is a couple of things. Uh, people don't always vote aligned with how they view policies, and turnout levels really vary by age. This is not new to your audience. If, if someone's listening to your show, I assume they know this. And also, the views on, on, on certain policies, to so say like abortion, for instance, can be extremely nuanced. Most people have nuanced views on this. They, they do tend to lean one side or the other. But when you ask them about policy details, then you really start seeing a lot of nuance. So I'm going to point to you, for instance, a poll that I saw from WPA Intelligence, which is a Republican polling firm. 49% of people who identify as pro-choice say that abortions should be only allowed up to 15 weeks or earlier in a pregnancy. And those are people who identify as pro-choice. So a lot of this stuff are just labels that people assume. Like I almost feel like pro-life and pro-choice are lifestyle brands at this point. People embrace these labels. They're not necessarily dispositive or they don't perfectly predict how they will vote. The abortion issue, it also depends. I think you brought it up. Um, it really depends on the messenger then the, the specifics of the legislation. Are there exceptions present or are there not exceptions present? All those details really factor in and can really change the intensity of the vote. Now, I'm not whistling past the graveyard here. I, I There are many reasons to be concerned if you're a Republican heading into 2024. I don't think it's as bleak as some of these opinion pieces suggest, especially like on the House side. These races are are one district by district. So the Republicans nationally, sure, I think we we won, we beat the Democrats if the House vote was a popular vote by two percentage points, but we had a pretty otherwise a pretty mediocre year because we did lose races in suburban districts, so say like Northern Virginia, for instance, where these issues really do come into play. So we do need good candidates. We can't run with crap candidates this year. And, you know, we need to see what happens also with the economy and Ukraine, all of that. Of course, I think it's a given or there are going to be huge issues next year uh, and they, they could very much change the election. All right. Well, let me ask you two questions then that are responses to claims that I'm starting to see a great deal. Here's the first claim. Republicans now have a big problem in swing states because of abortion, and it will likely cost them the presidency. Is that a useful claim? I think there's truth to that, but we already had a big issue in those states, right? So if you're looking at Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona, those are states where we were already struggling before 
before abortion really went, became into like a front burner issue. So I think those issues could be aggravated, especially with unsavory candidates or candidates who turn off the types of people who would be very, uh, the types of voters who would be responsive to, to arguments on those issues. So I'm talking about specifically suburban women, where we've been really struggling. In 2020, we had our worst year in a generation with women in the suburbs. So those types of issues could really hurt us in those states. But a lot of it also depends on who is at the top of the ticket, who's our messenger, because that'll be, I think, about 70% of the equation here. All right. So Florida, it seems, is about to pass a six-week abortion ban. It's being debated at the moment in the House. Republicans have super majorities in both chambers. And Ron DeSantis has said that if the legislature produces this bill, he will sign it. You talked about messengers. Is he someone who can survive having taken that position? Or will this hurt him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, for all intents and purposes, the the Democrats ran an abortion message against DeSantis last year. That was the subject of a lot of Charlie Chris's ads against him. It was a constant topic uh, because he had just enacted a 15-week policy. The Democrats draw, in, in their messaging, they draw no distinctions between 15 weeks and six weeks or 12 weeks. They just say that, you know, they just accuse Republicans of wanting women to die. So your average Democrat, actually, there's been polling done again by WPA on the levels of misinformation among voters and what they believe that Republicans act like what their perceptions are about Republican stances on abortion and birth control and whatever. The Democrats already believe the the very worst about Republicans on the on this issue. A majority of uh, the WPA poll found that a majority of Democrats believe that Republicans want to eliminate access to birth control and contraceptives. So they already believe this stuff. So whether it's 15 weeks or six weeks, that alone, I don't think it's going to move the needle. I do think there, there is, a, if you, when you look at closely at the polling by week, there is a difference between six weeks and 15 weeks. The 15-week ban is a lot more, it's easier to sell to the public. There, there's no There's no doubt about that. But the Democrats already ran this message against him in 2022 uh, with no no level of nuance or distinctions whatsoever, and he still beat them by 20 points in Florida, which was the quintessential swing state in America for my entire childhood and as, as far back as I can remember. So I am not convinced that that issue alone is what's going to hurt us. I think that issue combined with with a weak messenger, particularly in places like Pennsylvania, when you're, you're looking at the possibility of someone like Doug Mastriano running for the U.S. Senate, I think the combination of those two could be could really hurt us. But we also have counter arguments, which is something that we're not taking into consideration. There have been polls done that show that when you ask voters which position is, is most extreme, and so you show no abortions with the three exceptions, or abortions up until the point of birth, I think it's like by a 20-point margin, voters say the latter. So we do have counter-arguments here that are able to like muddy the waters and neutralize the issue. At the end of the day, though, people have to trust the messenger, and that's why I think it's so important for us to have strong candidates 
heading into next year. Before I move on to another political issue, you mentioned that Florida was once the quintessential swing state. I'm interested in the extent to which you think that has changed. You've followed Florida politics. Obviously, you're from Florida. I wonder if there's been an overcorrection. It is obviously true that politics in Florida has changed to some extent. During COVID, a lot of people moved here, and they moved here for largely political reasons. And the registration advantage that the Democrats had had disappeared, and it was replaced by a Republican registration advantage. And a lot of Hispanics who previously had not voted Republican started to vote Republican, and so on and so forth. But we're not correct me if I'm wrong, we're not looking at a state here that has gone from being a swing state in 2018, with elections that were won by 10,000 and 30,000 votes respectively, to a state where Republicans are just going to romp it by 20 points, right? No, I, I think that was a unique combination of factors. Number one was obviously Governor DeSantis himself and his agenda was very popular, and he was up against a walking corpse for uh, his his Democratic opponent, which is Charlie Crist, who did not excite anyone. In fact, there was a funny video of his campaign organizing a some kind of GOTV event in Tampa with Latin music, and it was literally just only three people showed up to it. So that he he, he was a spectacularly bad candidate. Uh, so that was a unique combination of factors. Uh, the DeSantis campaign also had a tremendous cash cash advantage. People knew him. They liked they liked what he had done in the in the pandemic. So, I think Florida is a. I wouldn't say it's like red as Idaho, but I like I, I do think it is a solidly Republican state now. The Democrats they view Florida now. When you talk to Democrats in the state, they're hopeless. But they do think that national campaigns will continue to invest in Florida to pull Republican resources into the state and so we're you know we're we're still spending money in Florida as opposed to Arizona and Georgia. So th- they are going to make a play for the state. I just don't think that they're going to be that successful. What I always tell people is that what's happened in Florida didn't happen overnight. It was about a state party that took its job seriously, put in a ton of work over years to build what's really a political institution in the state. And other part, like other state parties, should pay close attention to this and figure out what parts of it they can replicate in their own states, because right? it, it's extremely impressive. So if if we're able to run competent state parties, which we seem incapable of doing, in particular in places like Michigan, famously there's the collapse of the California GOP, but you know even even in places like Michigan where we should be doing a lot better, that really concerns me. The fact that we're you know, we are elevating people to these posts who don't take their job seriously. They don't know how to build winning institutions. And I think that that Florida model should be replicated in as many states as possible. All right, let's talk about guns. The Politico piece that I mentioned contains the line, Republicans are openly distressed about the prospect of losing younger voters over their stances on abortion, firearms, and democracy. And the democracy line in there is a reference to what happened in Tennessee, which I think is profoundly dishonest. And the hook is that the NRA convention is next week in 
Nashville, I believe. Are you convinced by that? Let me explain to you why I ask. First off, the supposed backlash against Republicans on guns never seems to materialize. That's not to say there aren't voters out there who vote on the question, but there are an awful lot of voters who vote the other way on the question too. Yeah. And the polling that I have seen on this suggests that a lot of the time, younger voters are actually more supportive of the Second Amendment and more skeptical toward gun control than older voters. I mean, certainly that's true in Florida, and it's true in Arizona, and it's true in Maine. There was a period two years ago in which younger voters were the least supportive of gun control measures of any cohort and there were all sorts of stories in 2021 being run about how gun control support among young people had collapsed since 2018 after Parkland when it jumped up. It seems to have raised a little bit again now because we've had high-profile mass shootings. What's your view on that? Is that Politico putting together a few issues that its writers care about and wish casting, or is there something there? So the democracy angle there is, is, is the one that would concern me the most, right? So when you look at the post-2022 polling, there have been studies done that showed that candidates who, for example, challenged the election results in 2020 or voiced skepticism about the accuracy of the election results, those candidates had like a, on average a two-point penalty, that they, they underperformed by two points. So that 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 argument from the Democrats concerns me a lot more than the gun argument. This is an issue where the country, when you look at even polling from uh, Civics, which is a Democratic analytics firm, it shows that the the opposition to gun control and, and support support for more gun control, they're like it's almost like fifty fifty. There's like a five point advantage for support for more gun control. So. I think a lot of a lot of that, like these issues, outside of some key suburbs, are are ju- just just kind of fall by the wayside. In in some key races, though, you could see gun control becoming a major issue, especially you know, God forbid, if we have another tragedy in some key suburban districts, you could see that be- becoming a big factor. That was the case last year, but by and large, I don't think that Politico argument that because young people supposedly and I think there's new polling that shows that they are more sympathetic to gun control, but it's not by the margins that you would imagine. You're, you're talking about 10 to 15 points in favor of more gun control, not like 30 or 40. So I think this is one of those issues where it's a lot of wishful thinking by the Democrats and it just really never, it doesn't materialize for the reasons I've mentioned. All right. So let's talk about what does worry you in that sentence. And that's the question of democracy. Now, without going into a long rant about this, I find the way that progressives talk about democracy infuriating because it's so inconsistent. Aside from January 6th, there is an endless supply of arguments that Republicans oppose democracy. Republicans supposedly oppose democracy if they like a Supreme Court case that upholds the Bill of Rights. Republicans supposedly 
oppose democracy if they expel lawmakers in Tennessee for having taken over the chamber and interrupted the legislative process, which we were told for the last two years correctly was a problem. Republicans, according to a piece published this week in the New Republic, oppose democracy by homeschooling their children. The, the, the idea that the Republican Party is opposed to democracy is so common and it is multifarious in its application. The Electoral College is supposedly anti-democracy. The Senate is supposedly anti-democracy. The Constitution is supposedly anti-democracy. A preference for free markets and free speech and religious liberty is anti-democracy, etc., etc., etc. Now, is this line in that piece, the one that worries you, is this tied to all of those accusations? Are you worried, in other words, about a broad perception that Republicans are anti-democracy? Or are you worried specifically about January 6th? Was that two-point penalty the product of January 6th and of people who are tied to Donald Trump and who have made statements about the 2020 election, or is it broader? No, so the the it, it's, it's specifically about denying elections and about January 6th. And again, look, I'm, I'm being descriptive here. I'm just describing what the polls say. Sure. I know that there's all sorts of views among Republicans on this issue, but it, it, it's it's extremely clear in the polling data. If a candidate denies the election results, they audit. It's it's like starting like you know like ten yards back, right on a down. You are going to be penalized by the voters. People are going to have a really hard time overlooking that. There's a there are key cross sections of of the electorate that we need to win in order to win statewide races in places like Arizona and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where those voters will just write you off. And there's very little you can do to win them back if that's what they think your position is. So there was a lot of talk last year. Why did Joe Biden go out and give that speech where he said that democracy was was on the ballot? Who was he talking to? It's clear who he was talking to. That message really energized Democrats. And then there are some Republican voters who let's say they're less than enthusiastic to support certain candidates who who have that position. So that is an, an, an extremely effective message for Biden. It worked really well for them in the midterms, and I think they're going to continue using it in the future. This is an introductory question to Trump, which is the last of the problems that are mentioned in these pieces. To what extent are those people, the people who are imposing that penalty on Republicans, the people who may not be Democrats but were swayed or inspired or motivated by Biden's position, to what extent are they now Democrats, functionally? And to what extent is this a problem that would be solved if tomorrow Donald Trump volunteered to go and live on Mars for the rest of his life. Yeah. So first, I have to disclose here that I I, I used to work, I, I worked for Donald Trump in 2020 for his campaign making uh, Spanish ads. So people want to take that into consideration in my answer. That's fine. But I think trying to be as objective as possible here, when, when you just, when you look at the data and how voters respond to Donald Trump, there was a, there was a, a post November study that was done to understand why the midterms shook, you know, went down the way that they did. 
And 88% of voters who cast ballots for Democrats said that stopping MAGA extremists was an important factor in how they voted. That's how they described it, right? With 74% of them said that it was very important to them. All these other issues that we've talked about, like the Dobbs decision and all sorts of other, like, and, and guns, sure, they they do energize people at the margins. There are some people who do write off Republicans for for those policy positions, but it's very clear from the data that nothing is energizing the Democrats more than organizing around stopping Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. Well, I, but that's interesting because, and the MAGA movement is my question. Yeah. The, the problem with that speech that Biden made from my perspective was that he lumped all sorts of other conservatives and standard, straightforward, long-standing conservative ideas in with Trump's election denialism. Yeah. I have a massive problem with what Trump did after the election. I think he should have been impeached. I don't think that it is related in any way to, say, an opposition to Roe v. Wade. Biden's speech conflated those two things. Yep. When, whenever it is, Donald Trump is no longer the main character in Republican politics... The first thing that Democrats are going to do is to tie his successor to Trump. They're going to say Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin or Greg Abbott or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley are Trumpist extreme MAGA types. Do you think it will work? Is this going to be hung around Republicans' necks successfully or do the voters that you're talking about distinguish between Trump and everyone else? They tend to distinguish between Trump or, or MAGA candidates and other types of candidates. We, we saw those differences uh, play out in 2022. But if we make it easy for them and we play into that, then we really hurt ourselves. So the best, if you kind of want, if you want to draw like a historical analogy, I, I just remember in 2008, Barack Obama run for, ran for president saying that John McCain was a continuation of George W. Bush. And McCain just fell into the trap over and over and over again. By the end of the campaign, he might as well have changed his name to George W. Bush just because voters equated the, the two of them. But yes, the, 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 the line that Biden uses, I, I agree with you. I, I think it was uh, overly broad and un it's complete. It's very unfair to lump people in who had nothing to do with January six, but it, it is an effective line of attack because it does it does motivate his own voters. And honestly, e even things like for, for instance, this again, this is from the WPA poll. So contrary to conventional wisdom, the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago actually energized the Democrats more than Republicans. Thirty five percent of the Democrats said that it was very important and influencing their vote compared to just 22% for Republicans. So a lot of what's funny is that a lot of these issues that we're seeing, so for instance, the indictment of President Trump, um, it, it, it does create a rally around the flag effect among Republican voters, but it could energize everybody else. So the more attention that we draw to this, which you, you mean, you can't not draw attention to it. It's, it's a it's historical event. But just by virtue of it being on the news at all the time, it could energize Democrats and independents to come out a lot more strongly against him uh, in 2024 is, if he were to be the nominee. So I think, it, I think it's a huge problem. I think 
even so say for instance like among when you specifically look at the polling among independents you have 53% of independents said that the storming of the capitol was a major factor in how they voted last year Th- that is a huge obstacle to overcome it's much easier to overcome if you're not running maga adjacent candidates who either support supported that or who have to play this this whole song and dance with it. So it's going to be a challenge for Republicans, at least in the in the immediate future. Now, this all of course, all of this always comes with a caveat that, you know, if tomorrow Joe Biden is walking up a flight of stairs, slips and falls on national television, that's a huge problem for Biden. Right. Right. But before we get to Biden, because I want yeah. to talk about his liabilities, let me just ask the obvious question then given what you've said about 53 percent of independents referring back to january 6th and the problem with being a maga candidate or being associated with donald trump if donald trump is a republican nominee in 2024 he doesn't have a chance right i mean he he has a chance in 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 the sense that the election in 2020 was closely decided in in a handful of states but if you look at 2018 2020, 2022, you start noticing a pattern. And I think it, it, it becomes, it, it's difficult to see the voter who supported Joe Biden in 2020 and is now excited about voting or not even excited, but just wants to vote for Donald Trump in 2024, given multiple, at that, at the, presumably multiple indictments at that stage, everything that happened post 20 the 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 2020 election it's difficult to imagine that voter i wouldn't say he has no chance but i'd say that the you know the the, it's it becomes very difficult uh it's it's not something that's easy to foresee how weak is biden i interrupted you because i want to separate out this question from the state of the republican party and the issues that are supposedly hurting republicans Biden, to me, looks disastrously weak, not weak enough to guarantee that he will lose, irrespective of what Republicans do, but much, much weaker than you would want if you were the Democrats, whose approval rating is low. It seems to be dangerously tied to the news cycle, such that one might conclude he doesn't really have a movement behind him. He is seen as a hostage to fortune. He is old. He's liable to be regarded as unable to do the job. And a lot of polls show that people believe that he is unable to do the job. He's presided over, and I would argue in some cases caused the worst inflation we've had in 40 years, which has led to the highest interest rates we've had in a long time. He was a mess on Afghanistan. I think he's done a good job on Ukraine. That's perhaps the exception. How weak is he? I think if you, so his latest job approval rating, uh, according to Gallup, is 40%. That's actually slightly below where Barack Obama was at this point in 2000. I'd say that would be 2011 would be the the equivalent. Uh, So he's weak, but he's vulnerable his biggest liability is just his physical appearance and how he behaves and how he conducts himself. He just doesn't, he looks frail. He doesn't look robust or strong. And Donald Trump's not much younger than he is, but he looks 
he looks a lot younger. Yes. Uh, he certainly looks a lot healthier. So I think that contrast doesn't doesn't really work for him. This is a guy who was elected president in 2020 without like literally from his basement. I think he held the Democratic much of the Democratic convention was held in his basement. He accepted the nomination in in his basement with his family. So he's not going to be locked in his basement in 2024, assuming he doesn't fall a triple over himself. I think he's he, he's not as weak as the polling may indicate right now. And he also just doesn't have a messaging operation up and running to attack Donald Trump and contrast himself with Donald Trump. The Democrats have a huge financial advantage over the Republicans also. So when those ads start kicking in, I think the polls show right now that he's essentially tied with Donald Trump. When those ads start kicking in, you might see a different story. Is that true of the other candidates who are tied in polls with Biden? Or is that a liability that is more pronounced with Trump? I think it's I think it's greater with Trump. Someone like DeSantis is just a, a much better contrast for Republicans with Biden. He's like about half his age, has a young, beautiful family. He's a very successful governor of a state. He's not tripping all over himself. So it, it's, a, it's a big vulnerability for Republicans, I believe, with Donald Trump right now. With Ron DeSantis, I think it's, it's, a, it's a much different race. He's going to try to paint Ron DeSantis as some kind of an extremist. The Democrats tried that for years in Florida. I don't think that they were very successful at it, clearly. They, they rushed to argue, for instance, on so-called don't say gay and what happened then was that parents looked at the bill and they thought, well, I kind of agree with this. A majority of Democrats supported that bill in Florida. Yeah. So I think it, it'll be a, a very, you know, he's going to try to make Ron DeSantis look like a racist. I don't think that's going to work either. So 2024 is not going to be easy. It's not a walk on the park. doesn't matter who, who, our, who our nominee is. But I think our chances are much stronger with someone like DeSantis who polling pretty consistently shows that he performs much better than Donald Trump and the other candidates among independents, among Hispanics, among other key swing voters that who we're going to need in 2024. Uh, among independents, I think it was up to like 10 points better. All right, last question. What liabilities should the Democrats be worried about? If the press were even-handed, and for every piece in Vanity Fair or Politico of the sort that I highlighted, you had one in the other direction that read, Democrats are openly distressed about the prospect of losing voters over their stances on insert here. What would it say? Well, it, it's clear that they're, the public is not with them on, on these cultural issues, right? So whether it's the, the bathrooms, the, uh, what's being taught in schools, the sex change surgeries for kids, even a, a Democratic-leaning pollster, I think I think it was YouGov that came out today showing that a majority of Americans believe, for instance, that children should not be attending drag queen shows, right? The Democrats can't help themselves but to like rush to defend these unpopular positions every time that these issues surface because the way that their coalition is built is that they get a lot of support and, and money from the more extreme groups who support this stuff. And even most 
LGBT people who I know don't align themselves with those groups. They think they don't really speak for them. But the Democrat machinery gets a lot of money from them. So they can't help themselves but to just come out and uh, take the most radical stances on this stuff. And it's going to alienate it, – it's already alienating a lot of voters. It's alienating a lot of Hispanics. It's alienating a lot of younger voters as well. But the question is for Republicans is like, are, is that are, are these going to be the issues at the forefront in the election? I think this is the kind of stuff that people talk about on Twitter, but doesn't really make it into the mainstream that much. That might be different next year, kind of like what we saw in Virginia in 2021. But the another huge liability for the Democrats, perhaps like their biggest one, is just Biden's physical appearance. The guy just just doesn't look like he's all there. Softball questions. I think Donald Trump said this. It was very funny that he just couldn't handle like the softball question at the Easter egg hunt about whether he was going to run for re-election. He could not have had an easier question and he fumbled all over it. So that's going to be their biggest liability, the social issues and also the economy. If inflation ticks up again or if we're looking at a recession next year, I would be panicking if I were a Democrat because we saw in for most of 2022, it started getting a little bit better toward the end. But for most of 2022, where the economy was in a, a serious slump with inflation and everything else that was happening, the Democrats were just looking terrible for the midterms, precisely because of the economy. So that's it's kind of out, out of his control in many ways. And he, he's not taking any policy stances that are that's going to ameliorate the situation. So that's another factor that I, I, I think will could really muddle things up for for the Democrats in uh, 2024. If the economy tanks next year, I think Biden's in very serious trouble. And if he continues taking these very radical stances on these cultural issues, I think it's going to alienate much of the electorate. All right, Giancarlo, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Yeah, that that, that was a, a lot of fun. I hope it was helpful. It was. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my sponsor, CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Thank you to my guest, Giancarlo Sopo. Thank you to the Super Mario Brothers. Thank you to the bemulleted Benjamin Franklin golf cart enthusiasts. Thank you to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>